A man for all seasons. The Quiet Men of England, number three. Nolan Peeps. Part one. In which we consider the optics. Fancy a drink, boys, ladies? Come, my credulous friends, come, my polymaths, come, stalwarts, come, newcomers. Bring your engines and other whatnots, bring your harridans, your hounds, and, if you wish, your offspring, though do please wipe your feet and leave them at the door, to Wesley Turpin. The drinks are on me. Deep in the heart of our village, jammed hard by the pretty green, with one window on the maypole and the other on the churchyard, a stereophysta of both sacred and profane, fittingly sat the local hostelry, the moon under water, a free house, free in more than one sense. Wesley Turpin has, as you may not know because I haven't told you, a unique topology. Nestling as it does in the green nowhere of the lush valley of the swollen turpentine, it lies almost invisible to the casual rambler. Even to the determined rambler, quite the blight of farmers from the neighbouring hamlets, it can pass unnoticed. Which is, of course, how we like it here. When the principal triangulation was underway, and Bromhead was but a twinkle in a Zulu's eye. The engineers and sappers had walked straight past Wesley Turpin with their theobolites, quite unaware of the market square, the smithy, and the church tower. And thus it was that Wesley Turpin passed innocently from the views and legislative fingering of the country's lawmakers. Weights and measures, licensing laws, health, safety, test and corporation acts lay unenacted upon the councillors, parishioners and denizens of that plucky haven of bucolic bounty for many a long year. Neither map nor labelled since doomsday, and so, subsequently quite unregulated, the freemen of the parish heeded only Magna Carta and common decency. Now, the Magna Carta has precious little to say of fluid ounces and last orders, and common decency even less. Thus it was that the moon under water, unburdened by the trammels of exactitude, served what it liked, when it liked, and in whatever glass was to hand, and was bound only by the caprices of mine host. Mine host, at this time of telling, was one Nolan Pepys. Ruddy? Yes. A florid, yes, <laughs> determined, martial, tolerant, and persistently chasing the coin, Nolan Peeps, landlord, confidant, and purveyor of intoxicating fluids. He could throw a bash and hurl a cayley with the very best. His door was the first port of call for wakes and all other rites of passage. He welcomed all and barred all at some point. He was a stickler for the rules, after all, though what those rules, of which one could fall foul, were, one was never entirely sure. 
His iron rule was tempered and hammered into wrought Gothic splendour by the soft hands and ample pleasures of his wife Titania, the power behind the throne, the hand on the shoulder, and the daily bright blond light of his life. Titania softened the rough edges and reined in the more exuberant flourishes of his sometimes capricious edicts. These two brave stalwarts knew and respected their place at the heart of the village. The young Nolan, rolling down the slope from his earliest days at Miss Nightingale's small school, had frequently barreled straight into the saloon and come to a propitious halt under the taps, where he had surreptitiously taken his first draught. His adolescence, toiling in fields of gold, had been bookended by many a boisterous libation in the taproom, and he, like so many young men of the village, had courted his swain in the snug. Titania had fallen for his rosy charms and broad, swarthy arms, rendered bronze by hours of toil in the summer sun. His coarse voice fell into a seductive register in her company, and she had thrilled through his eloquent paeans to her beauty. For beauty she was, and to his eyes still is. Indeed, the most frequent citation for removal from the saloon is to try and catch the eye of his fine lady. The moon was a large affair, clambering over three stories and extending its purlieu far beyond what you would expect from seeing the outside. It had a public bar, the taproom, a saloon bar, and the snug, which, like the public bar, had a roaring fire laid and welcoming from November to March. Upstairs, a dining-room served a rare pie and deep, warm suet puddings. Two guest-rooms completed the first floor. The first was freshly made and offered an unparalleled degree of comfort for any weary traveller, whilst the other had become the long-time de facto home of our friend, Kingston Bagbreeze. The landlord and lady had their quarters on the second floor, comfortable enough, and a quiet refuge from the bonhomie down below. The garden spewed out the back, offering seating and the ability to bask in the quiet orange glow of a summer's evening, tankered in hand with one's nearest, dearest, and neighbour. The moon hung with heavy fragrances, cast by the geraniums from the hanging baskets, and the heady scent was sweetened by a pergola of English roses that trailed over and around the awnings. The sign, which you would possibly expect to creak in the wind, did no such thing, and even in his dotage peeps could be found up a ladder any given Sunday, oil can in hand, easing the hinges. It bore a painted image of a full and florid moon. The villagers frequently assembled in various squadrons, groups, and gangs of all shapes and sizes. The irrigable Melton Constable would frequently be seen draining a stirrup cup. Bampton Fax would lever himself up at a bar stool for a refreshing lemonade de ton en ton, whilst former Napier schmoozed the ladies, a cool Negroni held by icy fingertips. One would see the giant figure of Kingston Mugbuiz, a now almost desiccated figure of Sunshine Jackson, giggling like schoolboys over some prank or other. Nolan Peeps kept a vast and noble cellar. 
the finest wines available to humanity, nestled cork by spigot with oaken casks as yet untapped for their hoppy goodness. There were ales, miles, bitters, and meads, and Broughton Poggs, long a figure of derision in the county, had made good on his wager with Melton Constable, and, with the help of bittering Parver, the Trotskyite ingenue, had established a brewery on his lands which now supplied the moon with all of the above. Of gins and such necessary cordials there were plenty, racked in giddy, serried ranks of coloured pleasure behind the bar. A skitteringly, if thankfully brief dalliance with taxidermy ensured that Pebbles, the publican's cat, fatefully flattened beneath a sharabang some distant autumn past, loomed like a somnolent lynx above the fireplace. There was an old piano in the taproom that frequently was hammered into some obscene phrasing by the idiot child of Aston Tirrit, mostly when the grown-ups weren't looking or two in their cups to give him the necessary boxing about the ears. And so ends part one of A Man for All Seasons. Thrilling, isn't it? Be sure to tune in, dear listener, to part two. Coming. Soon. is a very broad and very shallow production, written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Ridden. <laughs>